ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Laskin. Today we're speaking with Richard Weikart, who's a professor of history at California State University, Stanislaus. Dr. Weikart is the author of multiple well-known books dealing with the history of evolution and racism, including From Darwin to Hitler, Evolutionary Ethics, Eugenics and Racism in Germany, Hitler's Ethic, The Nazi Pursuit of Evolutionary Progress, Hitler's Religion, The Twisted Beliefs That Drove the Third Reich, and The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life. So, Professor Weikart, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Casey. You investigate and research in your career such depressing subject matter. So does that ever uh, get you down a little bit, uh, researching these you know, terrible topics of how the evolutionary ideology has driven all these terrible things that have happened in the world? Well, it could be depressing, but on the other hand, I know how the story ends. So <laughs> <laughs> that gives you some hope, at least, you know, it's yes. not all bad news. That's that's I, yeah. I'm, I'm encouraged to hear that, actually. Well, we're here to talk today with Professor Weikart, and the occasion is a chapter that he recently has authored for a book that I'm a co-editor of, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. His chapter in the book is titled, How Evil Has Been Done in the Name of Science. And we want to talk about his chapter and also the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith is co-edited by myself and also William Dembski and Joseph Holden. It has contributions from many leading ID scientists, folks that many of our ID the Future listeners are very familiar with, including Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, Guillermo Gonzalez, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, Brian Miller, Cornelius Hunter, and, and many others. And of course, you, Professor Weichart, and it addresses numerous topics related to science and faith, not just from a scientific angle, but also from a history or a sociology or a philosophy angle. So there's a lot of breadth in this book, and it deals with the topics in a very concise manner. So I certainly hope that our listeners will check out the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. But let's jump, jump into the interview here, Professor Weichart. You talk about evils that have been done in the name of science in your chapter. And there's often this perception that science as an enterprise is sort of amoral, that it can't do any right, but it also can't do any wrong. It's, it's just this dispassionate search for truth. So do you feel that this is a fair view of science and is it supported by the historical record? Well, as an ideal, it is the case that science is supposed to be a dispassionate search for the truth. But the problem is that we humans muck this up very often by uh, bringing into it various assumptions that may or may not be true, by various prejudices that we might have that might lead us in the wrong direction in our thinking about various things. And it's especially acute the closer we move to the human sciences, because that's where it gets more personal. Uh, and so the human sciences tend to have more problems with them than others. Also, the historical sciences are going to have more problems than the experimental sciences. Experimental sciences are harder to uh, keep those prejudices alive because you're doing experiments and you're having to replicate kinds of things. And speaking of replication and thinking about the human sciences, there's been actually a replication crisis, as it's been called, within especially psychology, but also other human sciences, where they haven't been able to replicate the experiments. They have textbook experiments that have been you know, done by prominent uh, psychologists and have been published in the literature and have been put in textbooks. And now we're finding out they really aren't so. <laughs> so I think maybe the rule of thumb is that the more data you have available to your field, the more maybe objective 
and less ideological that field is going to be. I don't know if that's always true, but would you say that maybe there's there's some grain of truth to that? Yeah, I think that that makes some sense. But I think also the further away you get from the human sciences, also the more objective people are able to be because it, it's not going to make a difference to them in the things that they've got built into them as their human prejudices. Absolutely. And I, I want to say, you know, just to give some context here, and I, I don't want to speak for you, Professor Weichart, but I think it's true for both of us that we are fans of science. We're not here saying, oh, science is all bad. Science is only a force for evil in the world. Absolutely not. I mean, science has done a lot of good, but it's important when we have these conversations to not forget about the history of maybe things that have gone wrong. Would you agree with what I'm saying or where do you come on that? uh, Oh yeah, definitely. I love science. I think it's uh, wonderful. And The scientific method is a wonderful way to try to uh, attain knowledge about things. We don't consider it the only way to attain knowledge. There's other ways to attain knowledge than just through science. But science is a wonderful enterprise, and it's brought us many wonderful things. Many of the technology, the technology we're using right now here is a a product of the understandings of science that people had, beginning with Faraday and others in the 19th century with their magnetism and and, uh, electricity and being able to do those things, and then on up into the computer age. So yeah, science is a wonderful enterprise, but because we as humans are not always wonderful, uh, we end up putting things into science uh, which are not necessarily true and which can then have evil ramifications. Very well put. So some people will, who are maybe science apologists who like to see science as the only way of seeking truth or the, the greatest thing that's ever been created by humanity, when they're confronted by evil that is done in the name of science, you talk about this in your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Some people will say, well, that wasn't science that did this evil thing. That was pseudoscience. And so I would ask you, is that a good defense? of the scientific enterprise? Or does that sort of commit the no true Scotsman logical fallacy, which says, well, as soon as you find some counterexample, you say, well, then that doesn't, they're not actually representing what I'm talking about here. What would you say to that? I mean, I think you're right. And historically, it's anachronistic because the idea is that when we look back at the past, anything that we think of that is no longer held scientifically well, yeah, you could call that pseudoscience. And for today's, by today's scientific standards, it is pseudoscience. But if we look at the standards of the day, the kinds of ideas that I'm looking at in my chapter are things that scientists did consider scientific at the time. So they're things that your leading biologists, anthropologists, and such were saying was science. And in fact, it's really interesting because many times people who opposed them and who were trying to speak truth to them in certain ways, very often they were scoffed at as being unscientific and backward and, you know, just not paying attention to what was really going on scientifically. So the notion that, and most, by the way, I should say too, that most historians of science do not think the science pseudoscience distinction is valid and should be used. And people never use those kinds of arguments today. They never scoff at the skeptics and call them pseudoscientists. I mean, that, I'm so glad we left, we've left all that in the past. Um, so uh, y- you say in your chapter that science perpetuates evil in two ways. One is by theories that justified and encouraged immoral behavior. And the other is by immoral experimentation. So in your opinion, what would be some of your most prominent historical examples of those two categories? Well, the first category about the theories, again, is usually worse in the human sciences. And I think probably scientific racism is going to be one of the biggest ones there in terms of uh, 
being one of the most egregious examples, uh, certainly in the effects it's had. Now, again, we need to be careful because racism predated scientific racism, but scientists were going to take that idea and make it even more prominent. And because of the ideas about biological determinism, that is that your heredity determines your behavior and your intellect and all these other kinds of things that were becoming prominent largely through scientists and physicians over the course of, let's say, the late 19th, early 20th centuries, and be a huge ramifications and was going to justify a lot of immoral behavior, such as colonization and such. But then not only did it justify these bad behaviors, but it also then was going to convince more people afterwards of these uh, that these things were scientific. And so people were going to come on later and is going to even win more adherence to, to the racist uh, ideologies. Uh, so in the early 20th century, you know, if you were to tell someone that racism is bad or wrong, the rejoinder could easily be, well, wait a minute, the anthropologists believe this, the, the biologists believe this, what do you mean? You know, this is a bad thing, you know, that the scientists are telling us that this is true. And so it, it reinforced those kinds of ideas. And when you look at then things like Nazi Germany, where they were relying upon these kind of scientific racist ideas, we see some of the horrifying effects of it. In the second example you gave, or the second key thing, if I can move on to that one, of the experimentation, interestingly, these things sort of overlap too, because one of the worst episodes of human experimentation in the United States would be the Tuskegee syphilis experiments that were held in the middle of the 20th century. And interestingly, they were held with Blacks, so the racism also played a role there in who they were choosing for their experimental subjects. But basically what they did is they were trying to understand what syphilis was and how it proceeded. And they did not treat the people, even after treatments were available, even after penicillin was easily available to treat syphilis, they didn't treat these people. So there's an example of scientific experimentation. The Nazis did this on an even larger level than that, but still, it's not just the Nazis doing it. Getting into sort of the evolutionary view of human beings and how that has affected racism over the years, you write in your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, you say, quote, many evolutionary scientists claim that we as humans are nothing more than a cosmic accident that arose without any purpose or goal. I'll ask this question of you, Professor Weichart. Obviously, these folks, many of them modern day evolutionary scientists, they're not racist. You know, we're not trying to say that the vast majority of the evolutionary scientists around today are racist. I don't believe that's true. I think that we've learned from our lessons of the past, thankfully, and that folks are trying to undo racist mistakes of the past. However, when people say we as human beings are nothing more than a cosmic accident that arose without any purpose or any goal, that view has been around for a long time. That certainly is not a new viewpoint. That has extended back into the Enlightenment after Darwin wrote Origin of Species that view got even more prominent. So how has that viewpoint historically played a role in treating human beings in an inferior manner and sort of leading to a science that was governed by an evolutionary paradigm that was actually supporting racism? Is, has that happened historically because of that sort of that ideology? Yes, it has. And actually, it's not just racism, though, that's been played out in that respect when we're thinking about this notion of humans as a cosmic accident. And in fact, in my book, From Darwin to Hitler, as well as in my later book, The Death of Humanity, I look at a good deal of how different allegedly scientific ideas played into this devaluing of human life that you're referring to, you know, this notion that we're just a cosmic accident, uh, and how that's played into 
the initiation of, say, the euthanasia movement, just to give one example. The euthanasia movement arose in the late 19th century. And by the way, it was very closely tied in with the eugenics movement, the idea that we should try to breed better people. And, and the euthanasia movement initially was actually more prominent in pushing for involuntary euthanasia, that is killing people with disabilities, than it was about voluntary euthanasia, which is usually how we think of it today when we're thinking about uh, euthanasia. And so there were a lot of people in the late 90s, I shouldn't say a lot of people, there were a few people, especially those that were embracing this uh, materialistic viewpoint and also Darwinian viewpoint, who were arguing that because humans don't have any implicit value, that we should just get rid of those who are considered inferior. And Ernst Haeckel, who was the leading German Darwinist, in fact, in his 1870 edition of his Natural History of Creation, his, the German edition of that, that is, argued explicitly that infanticide was a good thing because it got rid of people who would be considered inferior in his viewpoint. And so that was one kind of way that these scientific ideas did press for euthanasia. In fact, in the two major works that have been written on youth, the history of euthanasia, Ian Dalbiggin's book, which deals with the euthanasia movement in the United States, and Nick Kemp's book, which deals with the euthanasia movement in Britain, and they both cover from the mid-19th century up until the present, both of those argue that Darwinism was a very important ideology in helping to promote euthanasia. So that's another example of this kind of thing. Wow. To go off script a little bit here, Professor Weichhardt, earlier this year, I read the book Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari. I don't know if you've read that book. I have not read the entire book, but I've read uh, a few segments of it. And it's probably the section you're thinking of right here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where he, yeah. Where he denies the Declaration of Independence and stress on innate human rights, saying that we are not created equal, we're created unequal, we're not created with human rights, we have no rights. And such. Yeah, these ideas that he's putting forward there actually are very similar to ideas that I've investigated historically in the late 19th century among Darwin is saying some of the kinds of the same things or in the early 20th century as well. He's quite a, an anomaly, though, to be so candid in the 21st century. You rarely find an evolutionary atheist these days who's willing to look at some of the founding documents of our, of our Western civilization, documents that are the basis for our wonderful things like our belief in universal human equality and human rights, and yet say that there is no objective basis for believing these things within his evolutionary paradigm. I was astonished yeah. when I read that book that he was willing to be that honest. And again, I'm not saying that Yuval Noah Harari is a racist. I don't think he is. I think that he still, in his own mind, you know, believes that we should treat humans with dignity no matter where they're coming from. But what he's saying, at least, is that within the evolutionary paradigm, which he very strongly espouses and promotes in that book, there is no objective basis for believing these things. And he says right. something along the lines of, he quotes, I think it was Voltaire or some old writer saying, you know, don't tell this to the masses or they will slaughter their, their masters in their sleep. Don't let the truth out of the bag that there's no objective basis for morality or society will unravel is essentially what he's saying. For me, it was just such, it was actually really sad, to be honest with you. I mean, I feel very blessed and grateful that I have been able to adopt a Judeo-Christian worldview that believes that all humans are created in the image of God and that they all have fundamental worth and value, no matter who they are, what their racial or ethnic background is, or even what they've done. You know, we all have fundamental value. And I want to share something, Richard, if, if that's okay, that I've sure. I've actually never shared this yet since coming back from South Africa, and I'm a little bit hesitant to do so. So I'll, I'll try to be very uh, vague about the person who said this to me, but it was a really impactful moment that actually made me possibly realize that maybe there actually is something to the work you've been doing over the years. 
Well, my wife and I were in South Africa. This is not something that we really looked for. It just kind of happened. We got really involved with helping a lot of young men who are heroin addicts on the streets to go through drug rehab. And it was probably some of those wonderful blessings of experiences we had in South Africa was getting to know these young men, young men who are of African background. Their parents typically had no opportunities because of the apartheid there and were forced into abject poverty, no educational opportunities. These guys have just had some of the worst lives you could imagine. And they ended up on the streets addicted to a, a street drug there called Niopi. You actually mix heroin with marijuana and HIV antivirals with plasma TV acid and rat poison, strychnine. This was explained to me by a doctor there, what they wow. actually put in, they smoke this for about $2 a bag. Almost every street corner in the major metropolitan parts of Johannesburg, where we lived for over four years, you see these young men on the streets asking for money, basically, so they can go get hits. I won't go into all the details. My wife and I got to know some of these guys. They're wonderful people. And we've seen some of them go through rehab and get clean and frankly, turn their lives around. And they're just like amazing, brilliant young men now doing wonderful things with their lives. It's just one of the most biggest blessings of my life to see the transformations in these guys. But one day I was having a conversation with a visiting geologist. I won't say where he was from or anything about who he was, but I'm pretty sure he held a different worldview than I did. And he said to me something along the lines of, you know, these guys on the streets out there that are begging for food, they shouldn't have even been born. And I don't know if he knew much about me. I hadn't really, I didn't know him that well. Mm -hmm. We hadn't had an opportunity to share much about our own personal feelings, but it just broke my heart because my wife and I, by God's grace, were seeing these guys getting clean from drugs, being transformed, getting educated, turning their lives around completely by the grace of God that this was happening mm -hmm. and seeing just these wonderful qualities come out in them that actually, obviously anybody who's addicted to drugs, it, it destroys those wonderful things of your life. And, but these wonderful things were coming out as they were getting off drugs. And we were just seeing these transformations in these guys. And I was just thinking, what a tragic world you to hold that you don't see any worth in these people because they're drug addicts who had no opportunities in their life. And I'm so grateful to be able to know that they have fundamental worth and value and to know that, you know, I believe in a God who can bring these things out right. and turn their lives around. So anyway, this has nothing to do yeah. with, well, maybe it does have something to do with intelligent design in a way, but just something that really struck me. And I'm, I'm sorry for sounding off there, but worldviews do make a difference. You guys, I just hope people will understand that. They do make a huge difference. And in fact, my book, The Death of Humanity, I deal with these kinds of issues of the devaluing of human life that's gone on as a result, not just of Darwinism. That's one major part of it. And I do talk about that, but also other ideologies that have come up over the past uh, few centuries. But you're exactly right that people, if they hold the idea that we're just a cosmic accident, then you end up with situations like Harari's view that in Sapiens, that humans are not equal that humans have no natural rights because there's nothing to found them in if you're coming with an atheistic worldview. Absolutely. Let's talk about Darwin for just a moment. Obviously, he's a very controversial figure in this whole debate over the history of race and science. So was Darwin a racist? But if so, was he any different from any other Europeans of his time? I mean, sadly, a lot of Europeans at that time were racist. Obviously, that was a, a terrible thing from that period. Does Darwin deserve any special condemnation here? Or, or was he just sort of a product of a racist society that he uh, was brought up in? Well, I think the point is not to condemn him more than his contemporaries, because you're right, his contemporaries were pretty racist too. But the point is that his science was tainted by 
the racism. It wasn't just the fact that Darwin was a racist and that had nothing to do with his science. It had everything to do with his science because he was using racism to try to prove his scientific theory. He recognized that in order to prove Darwinism, his, his evolutionary theory, that he had to show that there was as much variation as possible within every species and as little variation between different species. And the way he did that with humans, because humans he knew was going to be the big flashpoint. That's why he didn't say much about humans in The Origin of Species. He actually barely mentions humans in The Origin of Species. Twelve years later, after everyone else had already written about a human evolution, he decided to jump in also and wrote The Descent of Man. But in The Descent of Man, he makes it very clear that his view of humans is that there's as much variation as possible within the species, and racism served that purpose to show what he thought is the most variation. So Darwin was claiming that uh, the Black Africans and the Aboriginal peoples in South America were far inferior intellectually, but also he thought they were, they were inferior morally as well. And the important point about scientific racism in the late 19th century in the, the post-Darwin period, too, is that Darwin himself, plus many scientists thereafter, were going to embrace biological determinism, which made racism all the worse. There were a lot of people in Britain, where Darwin was, who thought that the Black Africans could be educated and uh, we could improve them. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're pretty bad off right now and everything. But there's a lot of people who believed in environmental determinism, which is the idea that by education and upbringing, you can change people's character and nature. So even though they still very often had a superior attitude to their European civilization to, toward the Aboriginal peoples in Africa or South America or uh, the Australia or New Zealand and such, there were a lot of people who believed that you, you know, they could be educated out of that, uh, out of their barbarism as they saw it, right? Darwin and the subsequent scientists thought that these things were biologically ingrained, and so they didn't think there was any hope. And also, the other thing that Darwin was going to do was that Darwin was also going to integrate into his theory this notion of the struggle for existence. So there's competition. And how does that competition play out with biological species? Well, Darwin said that the most intense competition was always within a species because they share the same niche. They're competing for the same things. So within the human species then, he thought that this intense competition was taking place mostly, not only, but mostly on the racial level. That is, though the superior races were going out. And so he would look around and see Europeans colonizing the globe. And he said, that's the struggle for existence. That's what's going on. So Darwin integrated these ideas, not only about the inequality of races, but also about competition to the death, it must be added. Uh, struggle for existence is competition over scarce resources that will lead to the death of those who are considered unfit and then the survival of those that were considered fit. So this was going to make racism actually far more intense as a result of the way he integrated into his theory. G giving scientific justification to it. And obviously, if these ideas just sat there in a book and nobody ever did anything with them, I guess we would look at them now and say, okay, well, they were bad and Thank goodness they didn't go anywhere. But unfortunately, uh, along came the Nazis then in the 1930s and 40s. And you write about this in your chapter in the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Did the Nazis rely on Darwinian ideas and justifying their racist policies against the Jews and the gypsies and other ethnic groups? Or was this a case of misusing and or misinterpreting science? It probably was misusing and misinterpreting science if science is thought of as an idealistic form of you know, the, the truth and nothing but the truth. But the reality was that 
German scientists during the 1930s were promoting the same ideas that the Nazis were. In fact, that's actually where the Nazis got their ideas. They got them from scientists like Eugen Fischer. Eugen Fischer was one of the leading anthropologists in Germany during the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, He'd already published works in the first and second decades of the 20th century. And then in the 1920s, 1927, he was named the head, the director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Anthropology, Human Heredity, and Eugenics which was one of the leading research organizations in Germany would be the equivalent of like Yale or Harvard or something like that in the United States getting an appointment to that. And this is before the Nazi period. It's not the Nazis that put him in power. In 1927, Nazis didn't come into power until 1933. So he's a leading anthropologist in Germany before the Nazis came to power. He promoted scientific racism. He promoted the idea that miscegenation, that is mixing of races, is deleterious, it har- is harmful biologically. So he was promoting many of the same ideas that the Nazis were promoting. So was uh, one of the leading psychiatrists in Germany. He was actually head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Psychiatry. His name was Ernst Rudin. He was a leading eugenicist and also leading Nordic racist. So he was also promoting Nordic racism. Uh, and this, again, in the 1920s, before the Nazis came to power, as well as during the 1930s. These guys, Rudin and Fischer and others, were actually sitting on Nazi committees drawing up racial legislation. So these are scientists who are doing this, and they're claiming that they're doing it on the basis of their science. And these are just a few examples. There's many other examples we could give, too. Wow. Amazing. Let's also talk about eugenics, the field of eugenics. Who founded eugenics and what was his connection to Darwin? And is eugenics the bastard child of evolutionary thinking or a natural extension of evolutionary principles into social engineering? What would you say on that? Well, eugenics is the idea that we can sort of breed better humans. We can try to eliminate what they consider bad heredity, things like genetic defects, disabilities and such, and try to breed better humans by promoting the reproduction of those considered superior fit and such like that. It was founded by Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's cousin. And that's not the only Darwinian connection here, because he actually formulated his ideas when he was reading his cousin's book, The Origin of Species. As he's reading The Origin of Species, in realizing the changes taking place, the variations and such like that, he thought, well, applying that to humans, we should try to artificially promote the ones with better heredity so that we can sort of advance human evolution. And many eugenicists in the which really became a pretty important movement among scientists and physicians, really in the 1890s, early 1900s. Galton was already writing in the 1860s, but he was sort of voice crying in the wilderness the first few years. It took really to the 1890s to where it became really a coherent movement. But it became really a powerful movement among scientists and physicians, especially in that period. And they did see it as being a way to advance human evolution. One of their slogans had to do with eugenics is the human basically taking over of the process of evolution and driving evolution forward and such. And people like Charles Davenport in the United States, who founded Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, he was a very dedicated Darwinian evolutionary uh, scientist, geneticist, who believed that what he was doing was basically applied evolution. Yeah, it's very important to remember that some of these evils that have been done in the name of science, it wasn't just in Nazi Germany. We also have this here in the United States and many other countries in the world. So as we're talking about other places where there's potentially some dangerous concerning things being done in the name of science, what do you think about recent attempts to edit human embryos to change their genes? There was a case of a Chinese scientist in the news a couple of years ago who had done this. Would you consider this to be an evil being done in the name of science? Should we condemn this sort of behavior or what do you make of this trend? 
Yeah, well, there's a lot of experimentation going on right now. The one that was done in China under uh, Professor Hay was actually condemned by most scientists. Most scientists condemned that around the world, claiming that it was premature. They weren't claiming that in principle it was a bad thing, but they were saying it was premature because we don't know the effects well enough. So to do this kind of experimentation on a human embryo, what he did was he, he did some gene editing on a human embryo. And this was the first time that anyone had done this kind of gene editing that would be passed on to the progeny. There's been gene editing that's been done in the past where it's just for an, an individual's body, which would not be passed on through, you know, through your reproductive cells and such. But this was the first time it was done in, on an embryonic level to where it would be passed on to its, the progeny of that baby once it's born and once it re, if it reproduces. Uh, but there's other kinds of things going on today where they're making uh, human-animal chimeras, uh, which are sort of crosses where they're taking embryonic parts of humans and embryonic parts of other kinds of animals and mice, for example, and putting them together, putting human brain cells in a mouse embryo and doing other kinds of things like that, that that strike me also as being questionable, if not outright immoral. Definitely very concerning. So we're being pretty negative here, Professor Weichart. And I want to ask you, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but has science also been a force for good in the world? And at the end of the day, how do you balance, you know, when we're evaluating the impact of science upon society, some of the negatives it has done, but also the positives, how should we come away viewing science in light of this complex history? Well, for one thing, I think, and this is one of the, maybe the biggest upshot, I think, of the article is that we do need to be cautious about things today that are going by under the umbrella of science. Just because something is calling itself science today doesn't mean that it's true and doesn't mean that 20 years from now, people are still going to be calling it science. They may be calling it pseudoscience later on. So it should give us a little humility in relation to science. On the other hand, though, we do need to say that science has made some incredible strides of knowledge and has given us incredible abilities to do things technologically that we would not be able to do without science and has given us incredible knowledge about the cosmos and about biological organisms and all sorts of things. So I think we should celebrate the triumphs of science, but at the same time, be humble to realize that just because something's calling itself science does not necessarily mean it is true and it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Again, uh, very well put. I think that science is a tool and like any tool, you can use that tool for good or you can use that tool for evil. But when we get into the danger zone is when we start to worship that tool and believe that that tool is infallible and that it's nothing but a force for good and can't be misused because the tool is so amazing. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Human beings are the ones holding that tool. And you need to be very careful the way you wield it because science is a powerful tool. Thank you very much, Professor Weichart, for this highly stimulating conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Again, the book is The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, co-edited by William Damsky, Joseph Holden, and myself. You can find it on Amazon, and I hope you'll check it out and read more from Professor Richard Weichart on evil that has been perpetrated in the name of science. Thanks for listening. Did you know that ID the Future reaches tens of thousands of listeners every month with the evidence of intelligent design? We need your financial support to keep ID the Future going and growing our listener base. If you value this content, please consider a gift right now. Go to idthefuture.com and click on the big donate button near the top right. That's idthefuture.com. Your donation is an investment in science, culture, and truth. That's idthefuture.com. Thanks so much for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute.
and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.